This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. My name is Ann Thrupp, and I'm the executive director of the Berkeley Food Institute here on campus, which is a multidisciplinary center at UC Berkeley that is undertaking innovative research, education, policy work, and community engagement activities aimed for transformative change in food systems. Um, Along with the Graduate Division and the Graduate Council of the Academic Senate, I'm very honored and delighted to welcome Dr. Marion Nessel, this year's speaker in the Barbara Weinstock Lectures on the Morals of Trade. Before introducing Dr. Nessel, I'd like to take a moment to tell you how the endowment supporting these lectures came to UC Berkeley. In 1902, Harris Weinstock, a well-known businessman based in Sacramento, provided the University of California with a fund in honor of his wife, Barbara, to support an annual public lecture on the morals of trade. Weinstock explained his motivations in an article written after the first lecture was delivered in 1904. Quote, thus, Hope is in the air, and there is a better and cleaner day in store for all destined to spend their lives in commercial pursuits. The thing to do at this hour is to accelerate the movement and to bring this hoped-for day as near to our own as possible. The California University Lectureship on the Morals of Trade is a small effort in that direction." So others who have delivered Weinstock lectures include consumer advocate Ralph Nader, a member of the British Parliament, Neil Kinnock, Nobel laureate Amatra Sen, former U.S. Secretary of Labor Robert Wright, and former Secretary of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Kathleen Sibelius, so following in very esteemed footsteps. So now I'm very pleased to say a few words about today's distinguished speaker. Uh, Dr. Marion Nessel is renowned for her work on nutrition, food policy, and public health, as many of you probably know. Her research and writing are widely read by both popular and academic audiences. She examines scientific and socioeconomic dimensions of food choices, obesity, and food safety, with a focus on the role of food marketing. She is a prolific writer. Several of her award-winning publications include Food Politics, Safe Food, What to Eat, Eat, Drink, Vote, and Soda Politics. She is also um, the author of two books on pet food, Feed Your Pet Right and Pet Food Politics. I bet some of you didn't know that. (laughs) Um, From 2008 to 2013, she contributed a monthly Food Matters column for the San Francisco Chronicle Food Section, and she blogs almost daily at www.foodpolitics.com. So also, Marian Nessel earned her B.A. in bacteriology, her doctorate in molecular biology, and master's in public health and nutrition, all from UC Berkeley. So she is undoubtedly a Cal Bear. <laughs> and uh, this is a special homecoming, I think, that we're all so delighted that she was able to come. She is currently the Paulette Goddard Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at New York University, the department she chaired from 1988 to 2003. She's also professor of sociology at New York University and visiting professor at Cornell University. 
From 1986 through 1988, she served as a senior nutrition policy advisor in the Department of Health and Human Services and the editor of the 1988 Surgeon General's Report on Nutrition and Health. Dr. Nessel has received numerous awards and honors. In 2011, Berkeley School of Public Health named her Public Health Hero. Michael Pollan ranked her the number two most powerful foodie in America after Michelle Obama. And Mark (laughs) Bittman ranked her number one um, in his list of foodies to be thankful for. Yay. (laughs) Um, In 2013, she received the James Beard Leadership Award, and in 2014, the U.S. Healthful Food Council's Innovator for the Year Award, and the Public Health Association New York City Media Award. In 2016, her book, Soda Politics, won literary awards from the James Beard Foundation and the International Association of of Culinary Professionals. I'd like to add, more personally, that Marion's work is a tremendous inspiration to thousands and thousands of people. She is a great hero for many of us affiliated with the Berkeley Food Institute and the UC Berkeley community far more widely. Uh, In her lecture today, Dr. Nessel will address cultural, economic, and institutional factors that influence food policies and choices and the balance between individual societal responsibility for those choices and much more. I'm sure you will be enthralled. Please join me in welcoming Marian Nessel back to UC Berkeley. Thank, thank you, Anne, for that incredibly embarrassing introduction. Um, and thank you all for coming on this absolutely beautiful day. Um, I'm thrilled to be here to give this lecture. Um, I have to say that when I was invited to give it, my initial reaction was, what does what I do have to do with the morals of trade? Um, and I'm going, to try, I'm going to start by trying to explain that. I think I figured it out. Um, first of all, I had some help. Uh, Steve Lubin, who is uh, the, uh, someone who is connected to the Weinstock Lubin family, sent me a whole lot of information about it and told me that Harris Weinstock had something to do with Industrial Relations Commission and was market director in California in the early 1900s. And his half-brother, David Lubin, founded the International Institute of Agriculture in Rome. Together, they owned a vineyard, they owned wheatland, they promoted cooperatives, um, gave speeches about trade and tariffs, issues and and did a lot of observations of European agriculture. Um, So that's a connection that I couldn't find out anything about Barbara Weinstock. She apparently did not have her own identity, and that's a worry. I'd like to know more about her. Um, The morals of trade was a really big issue in the 1870s to early 1900s. There were books written about the sins of trade um, and the the morals of the way that trade policy affected society. And some of that uh, comes right up to the present time. The easiest analogy is fair trade. Um, where there are now books about fair trade and lots and lots going on with that, so that the fair trade movement, which is the connection between these old um, ideas about morals of trade and the kind of work that I do about the 21st century food movement, um, fair trade is about 
um, making sure that the producers get sufficient uh, money for the work that they do, uh, that there is no child or forced labor, uh, that there's no discrimination, there's gender equity, there's capacity building, and there's a lot of concern about the environmental impact of what people are doing. And these are all part of today's food movement. But I want to start this um, from work of Kate Clancy in 1982. Kate Clancy was a a doctoral graduate of the, uh, I think, the nutrition program, nutritional science program here. And in 1982, she wrote a paper that, for me, was absolutely life-changing. She asked a question that I didn't think anybody had ever asked before. Is it moral? Is it ethical for food companies to make and profit from um, highly processed foods of low nutritional value, what we rudely call junk foods? Is it moral to urge people to consume such foods? Is it moral to market such foods for children? And this, I have to say, changed the way I thought about um, the whole issue of food choice and food production. And if bringing that right up to 2017, I want to add a few questions to that. Is it moral to sell and market ultra-processed junk foods? That question still exists to support unhealthful, inequitable food environments, to market junk foods in developing economies where people certainly don't need them, to work as hard as they possibly can to oppose any public health effort to improve dietary intake, to spy on public health advocates, to fund health organizations to buy their silence around um, food issues, or to fund research to promote and protect sales of products, which is the subject of the book I'm working on now. I think these questions are really important to ask, and they're questions that drive the food movement. And I approach these questions from um, what is called these days food systems. Food systems has a lot of meanings for a lot of different people. I'm going to give you my version of it, which is everything about food uh, production and consumption from science to uh, food for agricultural production to nutrition to public health and to food advocacy for a healthier and more sustainable food system. It's just the big picture. Um, and it's, I'm interested in the big picture because I think the most important public health problems that face the world today have to do with food issues, most important in the sense of the number of people that they affect. Food, obviously, affects everyone. Everyone eats. So the three big problems are food insecurity, not having enough food to meet daily needs, obesity and its public health consequences, personal and public health consequences, and the environmental impact of our food choices. Let me just say a little bit about each of those uh, to get us started on this. The Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations says that about 800 million people in the world do not have enough food on a daily basis to meet their needs. Um, That is great news because it represents a decline of 200 million since 1990. If you believe the the figures and there's some question about whether these figures are accurate or whether they uh, represent 
um, the result of a change in the way the counting was done. Whatever it is, there are a lot of people who don't have enough food. There are people like that in the United States, and there are plenty of people like that throughout the world. It's a huge problem. At the same time, there are probably two billion people who are overweight to the point where they've developed risks or have symptoms of chronic diseases, such as type 2 diabetes, heart disease, and so forth. And what is remarkable about the obesity issue is that it's a worldwide phenomenon. And men and women all over the world, in every area of the world, particularly Asia, Southeast Asia, Southern Europe, and Latin America, are gaining weight developing symptoms of type 2 diabetes in countries that do not have the capacity uh, to help them with treatment. It would be much better if they could present it, if they could prevent those conditions. And what joins the two has to do with socioeconomic status and inequity in income education and resources. Um, This article talked about the growing socioeconomic disparity in dietary quality uh, that leads to both undernutrition and overnutrition. Um, And this was a relatively recent article from just a few years ago. But the first time that I saw anything about that was in... Um, the New York Times Magazine in 1996, 20 years ago, which had a cover story on how we eat in America divided. And it talked about how different the diets were of people who were educated and had money and people who didn't have money and didn't have resources. So that dietary quality was not only a matter of personal choice, it was also a matter of social class and the environment. Um, Very important concept in trying to figure out how we're going to deal with these issues. The third aspect of um, the food system that is a worldwide phenomenon is the effect of agricultural production on greenhouse gas emissions. And this is one view of it. I don't want to push this too hard because I'm not sure what the exact figure is. There's um, our estimates from uh, 10% of greenhouse gases to 25 or 30% of greenhouse gases due to the, are due to the way we produce food. Whatever it is, it's a big chunk of uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And if we had a better and more sustainable way of producing food, uh, we would be helping to prevent the uh, the climate change that seems to be happening so rapidly. Our food choices also affect climate change. And this is an estimation of the effect of our dietary choices on greenhouse gas emissions. And what it shows is that red meat is the single greatest, red meat production is this, and consumption are the single greatest contributors to greenhouse gases from the foods we eat. Animal foods in general are 60% of greenhouse gas emissions, um, another 25% from f- processed foods, and the ones that are the lowest are fruits and vegetables and grains just the foods that nutritionists are always telling you to eat, um, a point that I will come back to. So what do we do about this? Well, Michael Pollan, who's on this faculty, um, has. it is so simple to tell people what to eat that he could do it in seven words. Eat. I mean, it's, a, 
it's, and, in, and really, they work. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Um, a, a really terrific way of putting it. By food, he means foods, real foods that are relatively unprocessed. I have a slightly more complicated way of putting it. Um, if you're worried about obesity, you need to make better food choices. You have to eat less, and you need to move more, and please don't eat my book. Um, But if it seems more complicated than this, it's because of the effect of this kind of advice on the food system. The Dietary Guidelines for Americans that came out last year or the year before the 2015-2020 Dietary Guidelines um, basically say the same thing as Michael Pollan did, eat more fruits and vegetables and grains and whole foods and eat less processed foods, ultra-processed, junk foods, whatever you want to call them. But the problem is, and it's a huge problem, is that the profits of the food industry are in the junk foods. That's where the money is. Um, And so there are huge economic forces that are operating against trying to eat more healthfully, and those economic forces are very difficult to deal with. Uh, For one thing, they advertise. And there's a reason why so much of the food industry's advertising dollars go into processed foods rather than going into fruits and vegetables. Virtually nothing goes into fruits and vegetables. But the numbers that I'm showing on this slide are uh, numbers that are really hard to come by. And these are individual advertising budgets for specific food products. I think the number $30 billion, which is food, beverage, and restaurant advertising, is too big to understand. But you can understand a $30 million annual advertising budget for Pop-Tarts just in the United States, $110 million for M&Ms, $148 million for Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. That might have something to do with why you like them. And $254 million just for classic Coca-Cola not any of the other products that they do. These are staggering amounts of money in public health terms. I know no public health agency has this kind of money to work on on public education or anything else. And the government supports this kind of thing by allowing food marketing to be a business expense and deductible from corporate taxes. Something to think about. Um, Another thing the food industry did was to make larger portions. They did that because of policies that encouraged farmers to grow more food. This happened in the 1970s and early 80s. Um, But today, the restaurant portions are four times what they were in 1950, and they're probably two or three times higher than they were in 1980. And if I had one thing that I could teach the American public, the entire world, about nutrition, it would be this. Larger portions have more calories. (laughs) Um, This is so not intuitively obvious that um, it really is important. And I think that larger portions are a sufficient explanation for why people began to gain weight um, in the early 1980s. Portions got uh, got bigger, bagels got bigger, sodas got bigger, everything got bigger, people got bigger. Uh, Pretty easy to understand. 
Another critically important point that that bears on uh, the policies and, if you like, the morals of the policies that we're talking about, and that has to do with the relative change in prices. Between 1980, which was the start of uh, the rise in the prevalence of obesity, and the present time. This slide may be hard to read, but the line in the middle of it is the increase in the relative increase in price that occurred in the entire food system. What you can see is fresh fruits and vegetables and processed fruits and vegetables, their prices increase at a much, much higher rate than the prices of, for example, sugars and fats, which we're supposed to eat less of, and soft drinks, which I wrote a book about eating less of. Um, So this is, I think, the result of federal policies that allow the prices of some foods to be higher than others. Uh, And this is a complicated issue, but if poor people think that fruits and vegetables are expensive, it's because they are. And so we have a system in which the government, in conjunction with the food industry, have created an environment that encourages people to eat more and to eat more of the wrong kinds of foods. Um, So if that's how our policy has led, then we need to change policy. And a couple of years ago, Mark Bittman, Michael Pollan, Ricardo Salvador, and Olivier Deschuter Uh, wrote a document for the Washington Post about how a national food policy um, is is needed and could save millions of American lives. It's a very interesting article to read. It had lots and lots of advice about things to do. But I think it missed a very important point, and it's a point that I want to talk about, which is that in the United States, we have food policies, but they are divided. We have a food policy that deals with consumption, that's nutrition policy, and a food policy that deals with production, that's agricultural policy, the farm bill, and so forth. And these have nothing whatsoever to do with each other. And I think this is a very, very serious problem in our country and one that needs to be fixed. So let me um, introduce this by asking the question, In United States nutrition policy, where is agriculture? United States nutrition policy is expressed in the Dietary Guidelines for Americans, which is a document produced by the Department of Agriculture and Health and Human Services since 1980. Um, It comes out every five years by order of Congress, and this is the panoply of Um, examples since 1980. The most recent one, as I said before, came out in 2015. Actually, it came out early in 2016. So the dietary guidelines are organized. The way they're currently done is an academic committee gets together and reviews the literature and writes a, um, a research document that in the case of this one was 600 pages. And in that document, the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee made this statement that a diet that had more plant foods and fewer animal foods uh, will promote health more and will be less environmentally unfriendly than the current U.S. diet, um, something that you, know, you would think that everybody could pretty much agree on. The meat industry didn't like it. They didn't like it a lot. Uh, they viewed the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee report as an attack on the meat industry, and they reacted just the way you would think that um, 
a meat industry that was being attacked would, be, would react, and they went straight to Congress. Um, that's how the food industry works these days. If they don't like what the agencies are doing, they go to Congress. And Congress, in its infinite wisdom, put into a uh, House Agricultural Appropriations Bill a statement that uh, the Advisory Committee for the Dietary Guidelines is behaving in a very unpleasant way. It's interested in sustainability, climate change, and other things that we would rather that they did not talk about. Um, and we expect the Secretary of Agriculture to make sure that not one word of this gets into the dietary guidelines. And that's, in fact, what happened. Uh, Secretary Tom Vilsack, in March 2015, six months before the dietary guidelines were released, uh, made the statement that sustainability issues fall outside the scope of the dietary guidelines. And when the dietary guidelines were released six months later, uh, the word sustainability does not appear anywhere in the document in its 144 pages. Searchable. You will not find that word. So, so much for agriculture as part of um, nutrition policy, the Dietary Guidelines Committee tried. They failed. What about agriculture policy considering nutrition? Um, obesity, overconsumption, and any of the other uh, kinds of things that we're concerned about. Well, this brings us to the Farm Bill, um, and the Berkeley Food Institute is having a meeting in Washington next week in which they're going to be talking about the Farm Bill. It'll be fascinating to see um, what they talk about and what they think is going to happen in the present administration. But I can tell you what the last administration thought about it. Um, President Obama said of the 2014 Farm Bill, it's like a Swiss army knife. And I, I don't know exactly what he meant by that, but what I think he means is it does a lot of things, but it doesn't do any of them very well. Um, so the Farm Bill, what can we say about the Farm Bill? U.S. agriculture policy, does it say anything about nutrition? Yes, it does. The Department of Agriculture came out with the My Plate Food Guide, um, and that says very clearly, make half your plate fruits and vegetables. Half your plate, fruits and vegetables. Okay. Um, so what else does the Department of Agriculture do? Well, we have Representative Shelley Pingree from Maine to thank for this particular document, which covered the... Um, agricultural subsidies from the Farm Bill of, two, of 2008, from 2008 to 2012, and what it showed was that 0.45%, less than a half a percent, of the total agricultural money that, that was spent on farm supports of any kind went to fruits and vegetables. The rest of it went to corn, soybeans, oils, cotton, and so forth. Even more of a percentage went to, went to tobacco than went to fruits and vegetables. So there's a big disconnect between uh, parts of the Department of Agriculture and nutrition is not part of uh, agricultural policy. It absolutely should be, and I hope, Anne, that you will make sure that that conference says so. <laughs> No. So given this situation, um, what is the poor consumer to do? 
Um, if people are consumed about what they're supposed to be eating, it's because they're getting very mixed messages um, from government, from nutritionists, from everybody. And trying to figure out your way to navigate the, this kind of uh, food landscape is extremely difficult. And the solution to it um, is you've got to start eating out of a different parking lot. And what that means is changing the food environment so that it promotes healthier eating. And I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, There's a new advocacy organization called Plate of the Union that came out um, just a few weeks ago with a proposal for the farm bill that we emphasize more organic food, we invest in healthy farms, um, we fight hunger and food insecurity and revitalize the land and reduce food waste. Reducing food waste is probably the easiest of those, which is why there's so much interest in it. Um, But I think there are other food movement policies as well that are important to look at. And this is a slide I've used for a long time, um, looking at the various aspects of the food movement, all done in revolutionary terms, the slow food revolution, the organic revolution, the the locavore movement, and even the Occupy movement, um, are all parts of an enormous collection of groups that are working to try to make diets healthier and more sustainable. I wrote a book about food advocacy called Soda Politics that came out two years ago, um, and a lot of it was about how you advocate for healthier diets, using sodas as an example. And I titled, I subtitled the book Taking on Big Soda and Winning because I think that the Uh, soft drink story is one where advocates have had a very big impact and the impact is easiest to see in sales of sugar-sweetened beverages which peaked in the late 1990s and have been going down steadily ever since and this year was the first year in which sales of bottled water exceeded sales of sugar-sweetened beverages, Coke and Pepsi. Whether we all ought to be drinking water in bottles is another story. Um, Let's save that for another talk. But uh, from the standpoint of the soft drink industry, this has been an enormous disruption. They think it's due to health advocacy. I'm not going to argue with them about that. Now, the reason for focusing on uh, sugar-sweetened beverages is that they uh, provide roughly half of the sugars in the American diet. And the amount of sugar that's in soft drinks is absolutely staggering. You can't see it. You can't taste it. You don't realize it's there, but there's really a lot. The Dietary Guidelines for Americans and the World Health Organization both advise having no more than 10% of your daily calories from added sugars. To give you an idea of how little that is, 10% of calories, I've shown here a 16-ounce soft drink of Coca-Cola. This is the size that Mayor Bloomberg wanted to cap sodas at, and it contains about 180 calories and 49 grams of sugar. If if you have a uh, 2,000-calorie-a-day diet, you're allowed 50 grams of sugar a day. One 16-ounce soda has 49 grams. Um, So this is a big cutback 
in sugars. And it's another reason why soft drinks are such an easy target, because they have so much sugar in them. Sugar has no nutrients, um, whatever. So the soft drink industry has been under extraordinary scrutiny lately, um, scrutiny for its business practices, as this Bloomberg Business Week slightly offensive cover showed, um, scrutiny for its practices in marketing to children. Uh, the major soda companies have said that they will not market to children under the age of 12 on television programs aimed at children under the age of 12. This sounds great, but if you think about it for two seconds, you realize that there are many, many loopholes in that kind of marketing. And every group that has tried to evaluate whether soft drinks are, in fact, marketing to children under the age of 12 finds that they are in many other ways, as this sugary drink facts uh, report from the Rudd Center in Connecticut uh, came out and said. Um, The soft drink companies are also under scrutiny for marketing to minorities, uh, which is something that that there's a long history about. but they are uh, minority groups are the largest consumers of sugar sweetened beverages, and that's where the marketing effort is going. Now, I mentioned Bloomberg's soda cap idea, and I uh, because it's another place where ethical issues come in, and where the question is: Is it ethical for? Uh, food companies to fight public health measures. Uh, So here was Bloomberg who wanted to put a cap on uh, the sizes of sodas sold in New York City at 16 ounces, and the soda industry went absolutely ballistic um, and eventually took the city to court, won the suit, um, and ended that whole enterprise. I'm not going to say too much about that because I don't think that the Bloomberg administration handled it very well. Um, and there's a chapter in the book that, in my book, that explains what, what they didn't do that they should have. Um, but the fact that the soda industry fought so hard and spent untold millions of dollars to fight the soda cap. Um, is one of those questions that raises a moral or an ethical issue um, in the context of what we're talking about. Um, These issues also came up in the context of the New York Times revelations in August 2015 that Coca-Cola had been funding a group of researchers uh, on obesity to argue that physical activity was the problem with gaining weight, and it really didn't have anything to do with what you ate. And this was so incredible and raised such questions of incredulity that even Fox News was shocked, as shown, <laughs> as shown here. Um, it was pretty shocking, and the reaction to it was incredulous. I don't know how else to put it. Uh, and Coca-Cola got a lot of pushback for this revelation, so much of a pushback that a week later, the head of Coca-Cola International, Mutar Kent, um, wrote an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal in which he said, uh, we've been caught in something we didn't even realize we were doing. Um, We can do better than this. This doesn't reflect our company. We are making a commitment to publicly disclose everybody that we fund. And it's going to take us a while to do that because we're going to ask everybody if they mind if we tell. And some people did. 
they would rather not know that. But in fact, they did exactly what they were going to do, and they published on their website, and it is still on their website, and it is still fascinating reading. They published a list of the 1,200 individuals and organizations that Coca-Cola funds, um, I think, for the purpose of buying silence, if nothing else. Um, And they published a list of individual health professionals who consulted for, were otherwise paid by Coca-Cola, and a group called the Ninjas for Health, uh, they're quite something, um, did an analysis of it and discovered that 55% of the uh, individuals who were taking money from Coca-Cola were dietitians. Um, So Coca-Cola knew what it was doing in that sense. uh, The revelations of who got funded had a big fallout. Um, For one thing, a lot of the groups were very embarrassed. Uh, The Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, the American Academy of Pediatrics, and the American Academy of Family Practice were all organizations with substantial opposition among their membership to collaborating and partnering with Coca-Cola, and Coca-Cola pulled out of those three organizations. Um, Soon after that, the University of Colorado, which was the place where this Global Energy Balance Network was located, returned a million-dollar grant to Coca-Cola. Those of you who know anything about university funding, that should bring a gasp. Um, That the university would give back a million dollars? Are you kidding? But the University of Colorado was so embarrassed by um, the way this money appeared that they gave it back. Um, And then Coca-Cola eventually pulled out of the Global Energy Balance Network, and that was the end of that, or or almost the end of that, because what happened next was that reporters started using open records requests and getting emails from the researchers who were taking money from Coca-Cola and Coca-Cola. And I'm very happy to be working at a private university, so my email is not foyable. But if you're at Berkeley, yours is. Be careful. That's all I can say. So the Associated Press was the first to publish about the emails between Coca-Cola executives and these researchers. And they quoted Rona Applebaum, who was then the chief Uh, scientific officer at Coca-Cola talking about how the Global Energy Balance Network at Colorado was uh, a weapon in their fight against um, radical organizations and their proponents. I guess they mean by that people like me who were thinking that soda taxes really weren't such a terrible idea. In any case, on the day that the Associated Press published the article about these emails, um, she resigned. What a coincidence. Um, Then Coca-Cola, and I think not because they were trying to hide the amount of money they were spending, but I think they really didn't know how much money they were spending, found out that they were spending a lot more. And they reported that they have, they now report that they've spent about $135 million to support research and partnerships with organizations of one kind or another. And they, their partnerships tend to be with health organizations and fitness organizations, um, some of them quite amazing. Um, and I don't think the, we've seen the end of that yet. Uh, The Coca-Cola-sponsored research tends to come out with results that are 
very favorable to Coca-Cola. This is typical of industry-funded research generally. So here are three examples. The National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, um, which is the main survey that shows that um, sugary soft drinks are linked to obesity and diabetes, that survey has no validity, according to this study funded by Coca-Cola. Um, any results in the literature that indicate a link between sodas and obesity have no validity, according to a Coca-Cola-funded study, and sugars are harmless, according to another Coca-Cola-funded study. Um, and in fact, this kind of thing is so common that a group of investigators at the end of last year uh, published an article and an analysis in the Annals of Internal Medicine in which they asked the question, um, are sugary drinks related to obesity and diabetes? And they counted up the studies that went one way or the other, and they found 20 studies, 26 studies that said, no, sugary drinks have nothing whatsoever to do with obesity and diabetes. Every single one of them was funded either by uh, Coca-Cola or the American Beverage Association or some other industry uh, that they work with. On the other hand, there were 34 studies that said yes, uh, the sugary drinks are related to obesity and diabetes, and of those, only one was funded by industry. I bet that person never got more money. <laughs> no. Um, so if you can't sell sodas in the United States, sell them overseas. And what's remarkable about the effort of Coca-Cola in particular to sell um, Coca-Cola overseas is the amount of money that it has committed, but I can tell you that PepsiCo has committed equivalent amounts. Center for Science and the Public Interest came out with a report last year in which they added this up, and this diagram comes from their report. Um, and between the numbers refer usually to a 10-year period from 2010 to 2020, uh, Coca-Cola is investing $12.4 billion in Mexico. Um, $17 billion, that's a B, not an M, billion in Africa during that period. Uh, and if you just think about what $17 billion could do for development in Africa, um, then the idea of building bottling plants and arranging for people to be selling Coca-Cola seems um, ethically questionable. Is that a fair statement? Um, the other thing that came out, I'm just back from a uh, Fulbright in Mexico at the Institute of Public Health where um, these people were still reeling from having spyware installed on their phones. And this is spyware that was invented in Israel to trace terrorists, and it is sold only to governments only to governments. And that must mean that the, somebody in the Mexican government authorized the uh, installation of this spyware on these people's phones. These are um, people who are, these are soda tax advocates. Um, on the left is Simone Barquero, who's a, who works at the Institute of Public Health in Cuernavaca um, and is doing research on um, sodas in Mexico or big problem in Mexico. Mexico drinks a lot of soda and they have very high rates of obesity. And on the right is Alejandro Calvillo, 
uh, who's the head of the leading advocacy organization um, that is fighting for the soda tax. Um, these, the units with which they work have Bloomberg philanthropy money, so they're rather well-funded for doing their work, and they've been extraordinarily effective. And they have spyware installed on their phones. When you talk to them, they collect everybody's phones and put them in the refrigerator. Um, so that they're not being listened to. I was spied on. When the uh, revelations came out about the, uh, the leaks of the emails that, were, um, that came out from Hillary Clinton's, uh, the people that worked with it on Hillary Clinton's campaign, there was a separate set of emails that was posted on DC leaks, and they're still there. You can go look at them. Um, because somebody who worked on the Hillary Clinton campaign also was consulting for Coca-Cola at the same time. So by coincidence, uh, the, when the Russians, I guess it was the Russians, picked up all these emails and posted them, uh, it collect, there was a collection of Coca-Cola emails too. And I got um, very quick messages from people saying, Marion, you're in the emails. <laughs> I was so excited. Um, so it turned out I was in Australia um, a, um, in the winter a year ago in, 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 20, in the early 2016, and Coca-Cola sent somebody to a lecture that I gave um, at the University of Sydney. I was talking about soda politics, which had just come out, and took notes. And those notes were passed up the chain of com command and ended up in Capricia Marshall's email cache um, and are now posted for everybody to see. And what they recommended was that my activities in Australia be monitored. I knew that somebody at my talk was from Coca-Cola. I assume that there's somebody from Coca-Cola at every talk I give. Hi. Um, um, so I wasn't particularly concerned about it. I was just amused by this. Um, but the uh, Sydney Morning Herald did a big article about Coca-Cola's secret plan to monitor the woman whose group I was working with in Australia, Lisa Biro, who works on conflicts of interest. So that was kind of exciting. Not as exciting as spyware, but exciting nevertheless. Um, so this is the kind of thing that the food industry does. It's just that Coca-Cola got exposed. But my assumption is that this is what big food companies do. And Michael Pollan wrote uh, last year in the New York Times Magazine about um, the Obamas that whenever they did anything serious about big food, they were quickly out-lobbied and outgunned. And then he said, the food movement still barely exists as a political force. I'm not sure that's true. I tend to be maybe more optimistic than he is. And so I want to talk about why I think the food movement is really making progress. And I'll just say personally, I measure it by food studies programs at universities. When we at NYU started our food studies program in 1996, we were it and everybody thought we were crazy. Who would ever want to study about food? 20 years later, we have all of you in the audience, the Berkeley Food Institute, Janet, uh, your, your chancellor's enormous food program, and almost every university that I visit has a food studies program of one kind or another. So that's my personal measure of it. But there are other ways to measure it, too. The increase in the number of farmers' markets, shown on the left, and the increase in organic sales, 
shown on the right. These are measurable, quantifiable demonstrations of the effectiveness of the food movement. Um, the fight for a minimum wage, the fight for 15, Saru Jayaraman, who's on the faculty at the Goldman School, has been heading up this and is one of the leaders in this movement. It, too, is having enormous success, not as much as we'd like, but still success. Um, and there are many, many people who are participating in that. The food industry is listening. Sometimes they listen in superficial and cosmetic ways, like taking aspartame or additives or um, artificial colors or dyes out of foods. That's nice, but it's not world-shaking. Sometimes it's in more important ways, like sourcing animals that were not treated with antibiotics. That one's much more important. Um, So the food industry is listening. Um, And, of course, there are soda taxes, uh, with Berkeley leading the way with an advocacy campaign for soda tax that was absolutely exemplary, done advocacy by the book exactly the way it's supposed to be done, and it was no wonder that it passed with a 76% vote. Um, and set an example for uh, lots of other cities that are following this example. And there's a soda tax movement that is now taking place throughout the United States. Here's the current list. The one that's in play right now is Santa Fe. Um, But all of these others have passed taxes and often with uh, really impressive majorities. It's also... Uh, One of the things about the tax movement that I think is really important is it's being framed as a social justice issue, Um, that people will be healthier if they're not drinking these things, if they don't have corporations running what they're supposed to be eating in their life. Social justice, moral, ethical, just what we're supposed to be talking about here. It's also a trade issue because the soda taxes have become a worldwide phenomenon, Um, South Africa, Portugal, and the United Kingdom um, are either looking at or have passed soda taxes, and so our trading partners are getting involved in this. And of course, the most uh, impressive one is Mexico, where I just was, where um, the advocacy campaign has been carried out at the highest possible level, and the research that goes with it is also being done at the highest possible level, and they've just come out with a paper that uh, documents a significant reduction in soda consumption, particularly among people who are poor, which is exactly the target group that they wanted to get at. Um, So much, much progress, signs of movements, and then the business community thinks that food activists are your new brand managers. Let's make that true. Would be, would be my uh, recommendation here. Um, so the food industry is scared, they're worried about it, and it's up to us to make sure that we hold them accountable. So uh, that brings me to the moral of the story, which is that I think it's really important for us to exercise our personal moral and ethical responsibility in our food choices. That's vote with your fork. Every time you make a decision about the kind of food you're buying, you're making a vote for the kind of food system that you want to have. Make it happen. Choose fair trade and choose all of these other kinds of 
foods that will be healthier for people and for the environment. At the same time, I think we have a moral responsibility as a society um, to change food system policies. I think that's going to be difficult for the next few years, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be trying, and it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be trying, particularly at the local level, where real progress can be made. The purpose of this is to make the healthy choice the easy choice and the most environmentally friendly choice. Um, So that's the message that I want to leave you with, and I thank you very, very much for the opportunity to share this with you today. Thank you. comment. I've always been struck by just how much more expensive organic, what they call organic food mm. at the grocery is. I mean, fruits and vegetables are expensive to start with, and then on top of that, mm. is the profit margin greater on organic food than it is on, on regular? It may be. You'll have to ask organic producers here, but it costs more really? to produce organic food because you have to use better techniques. You have to. You, you need more people. You need people watching it. You've got to hand pick off bugs. You've got to do all kinds of things. Um, so it's more expensive. Um, is it more profitable? I think maybe it is. I don't know. I think it depends. But it certainly costs more to produce. Yeah. Hi. Um, thank you so much for your talk. I just had a question about the personal moral responsibility. It seems like, to me, we've seen wave after wave of activism uh, change the way that the market works, but ultimately the corporations that are controlling most of the capital and the resources seem to have misaligned incentives with the rest of society to create a better way of life for everyone. And I'm wondering how you square away the misaligned incentives of capitalism that will always... um, Co- uh, co-opt uh, methods that recycle, to recycle better, to uh, treat workers better um, with this overall, um, with the individual choice of making the world a better place. Yeah, I think it's very difficult to, um, it would be very difficult for me to give a talk that started out saying, I think our capitalist system is really bad for health and the environment. It's much easier for me to talk about it this way. Um, And I think people can hear it better um, if you talk about it this way. I think what the food movement is doing is trying to create an alternative. It's a small alternative. It's not a huge piece of it, but it's an important piece for a great many people. And if you want to take on capitalism more power to you, I don't know how to do that. I certainly don't know how to do it now. Uh, when half of the voters, or slightly less than half the voters, elected somebody um, who's very interested in capitalism and his own self-interest. So I'd rather talk about this. I think you can go into a school and change the food in a school and make that food healthy, and people are doing that all over the country, and you're doing wonderful things for the kids in that school, and maybe teaching them about alternatives. I don't know any other way of doing it. I'm, I'm not uh, somebody who's willing to take that on. Cool, yeah. awesome. I really respect that response. And yeah. I think one thing I'll just say to challenge you is that with survey after survey, you see that particularly young people are increasingly disenfranchised with capitalism generally and are more open to alternative systems, um, not only systemically, but also in the way that we distribute resources. So I'd encourage you to check out those numbers because I think there may be a bigger opening than we like to think. So thank you again. Well, then vote. Get out there and vote.
I am a registered dietitian. I'm not paid by Coke, I promise. Most of them are not. Um, and I'm really interested in the convergence of nutrition and sustainability. I think it's really big and something we should talk about more. Do you think we'll see it in the 2020 dietary guidelines? In this administration? I don't know. It depends on who the committee is, how strong the committee is, and how um, the committee is willing to fight for what they think is right. And I don't know. I mean, are they appointing that committee right now? I don't tend to be appointed to those committees anymore. So the, um, um, They're together now, I heard. Yeah, so. so it depends on who gets on there. Okay, thank you. Um, Hi, thank you so much for your talk, and thank you for your work. I love it. Um, this might be another sort of naughty problem linked to capitalism, but um, what do you see as a possible solution or solutions to the problem of industry-funded research? Because we see that across the board in all disciplines, and it's really problematic. Yeah, that's the subject of the book I'm working on right now. And um, the only, I only see one solution to it, and it's an impossible one. And that is, and I'll just go cut right to the chase, um, the, because industry funding influences the outcome of research and the people who do the research do not recognize that influence and are completely unconscious that, of its happening, um, and there's plenty of research that shows that, the only way that you could do that would be to set up an industry fund that was required. Where I mean, I think it, if you required food companies of a certain size to contribute a certain amount of money into a research fund and they were required to do it, it wasn't voluntary. If, if it was voluntary, you'd have to pander to the companies, and that wouldn't work. Um, then I thought, I think something like that might work. But I can't think of anything less than that. You know, I think there are individual researchers who can try to protect themselves from the influence if they're aware that they might be influenced, but it's really difficult. No, I think that's great. Thank you so much. Yeah. Hi. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about the proliferation of tech companies getting in <laughs> on food and food uh -huh. delivery services and what uh -huh. friends of mine are starting to call the uberization of food, if that's <laughs> something you're watching or thinking about. Yeah, I think it's hilarious. I mean, I'm the wrong generation for this, right? So, the, um, um, and, I, and I have sort of an automatic, really, Soylent. Have you ever tasted it? It's, um, it tastes like uncooked pancake batter, in my view, and you can quote me. But the, um, it, yeah, I mean, I just don't get it at all. And yet, there are people who are fascinated by it. There's vast amounts of uh, venture capital going into it. And I actually have gone to a couple of tech conferences because I'm kind of interested in what they're doing. Um, and I did actually visit Aero Farms, which is a place where they're growing microgreens in a huge factory in Newark, New Jersey. Um, and that's impressive, actually. So there may be some aspects of it that work. But I wouldn't put any money in it. Thank you. Hi there. I'm one of the people that advocates eating insects in a self-interested way because I run a company that farms food-grade crickets. And we're building a new place in the food system. I'm looking horrified because I was given an enormous bag of, they weren't crickets, what were they? Grasshoppers, yes. 
um, which I shared with people at lunch today. Yeah, and, and they're <laughs> delicious, I think. And, and you all should try them. But um, uh-huh. So we're trying to build a kind of new piece of the food industry, mm-hmm. and most of us are trying to do that responsibly. I'd be curious if you had any thoughts on how to avoid some of the pitfalls that loom for scaling food businesses as you know, we see you know, the capitalist structure forcing large companies or incentivizing large companies to act in kind of not very uh, responsible ways. Well, you do the best you can, but the economic forces are invariably to cut costs because cost is the big issue in food. I've just read this morning, I think, that retail grocery stores are having a terrible time. Wegmans, which is a chain in the Northeast, is having to cut its prices because it can't compete. So if the pressure is to keep the price as low as possible then you're going to not pay your workers reasonable wages, you're going to cut food safety, you're going to do all those other things that food companies are doing. So one of the arguments is, well, people need to pay more for food. That's not an argument I'm comfortable making because if we're going to make people pay more for food, we have to pay people more so they can afford it. Um, We have enough trouble with that. So good luck to you. I don't know what to say. You have to stay small, and if you stay small, you won't be rich. (laughs) You know, I was an academic all my life. It's, um, you know, it's... uh, So thank you for a a great talk. I mean, it was fantastic. But I want to ask just your thoughts, your broad thoughts on an issue that didn't come up in the talk, which is the whole foods all need to be cooked, whereas oh, yes. everything else is just handed to you all mm-hmm. fried and battered and cut up into mm-hmm. bite-sized pieces. And, you know, it somehow seems to have become harder and harder mm-hmm. for small families or single people or even large families to just cook. And I just wonder what your thoughts are on how that can be done more because I don't see... That's just a practicality mm-hmm. that we, yeah. we have to... Think through. Yeah, Thank you. I learned to cook in junior high school. You know, home economics. That we took cooking classes, um, and one of the things you know, if you know how to cook, you can produce a meal in no time at all. Um, but people have other priorities, and I don't like to judge other people's decisions about that. If they don't want to cook or they don't know how to cook, there are plenty of other options. If they, if you do know how to cook, you can live very cheaply. So that's an incentive. I don't know what to say about that, though. I like to cook sometimes, but sometimes not. (laughs) I, too, want to thank you for all your many years of incredibly important and valuable work. Um, My question also relates to something that was not touched on in your talk, but that is your thoughts on the effectiveness of um, food recovery efforts Mm -hmm. because of the enormous amount of wasted food Mm -hmm. and what, yeah. yeah, what your thoughts are. Yeah, I decided that waste wasn't going to be my issue and I would leave it to lots of other people. I think it's an easy one and it's a feel-good issue, makes everybody feel really terrific. I'm much more concerned about the production side, um, that the reason we have so much waste is because so much is produced and it's built into the system. And I'd rather try to figure out some way to attack it from that end. 
Um, but lots and lots and lots of people are involved in food waste in the same way that lots and lots of people are involved in food distribution systems to the poor, food banks, and these kinds of things. These are feel-good issues, and they're, um, I hope they're entry points into the food system. Um, that's, and I support them for that reason. You get people involved in this, maybe realizing that there are a lot larger forces that are causing this, and maybe looking at what in public health we call upstream you know, causes of it. But you know, there are lots of people working on food waste. I figure they don't need me. So. Thanks for being here. It's, it's exciting to be face-to-face with you after following you online for so long. I'm just wondering... Um, what you've seen um, that's maybe been exciting to you in terms of new mothers, pregnant women, um, low-income women specifically, and um, healthy eating for for babies, knowing that if they start healthy, the likelihood of Mm -hmm. continuing healthy. um, Mm -hmm. Well, there are lots of people who are working on that and lots of NGOs and lots of groups and lots of... It's not something I'm personally interested... that I'm personally involved in. Um, but I certainly support it. There are baby-friendly hospitals and um, lots of efforts to try to get women to breastfeed. And some of them are successful and some of them are more successful than others. I'm not sure what you're really driving at here. Um, it's a good thing. <laughs> Hi. Thank you for being here. I was just hoping you could comment more on the nature of the soda tax. I know there's some like contention of how this tax could be a higher burden for maybe perhaps people who are low income, Mm -hmm. but we see how this tax has been implemented in different ways, and I think Berkeley itself has done it very creatively. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't know if you could comment more of how this could play out differently. I mean, different locations have decided to use the tax money in different ways, some of them more popular than others. Berkeley, as I understand it, um, is putting it into child health and child health clinics and Um, And it's actually doing that, so that's great. Um, It's a regressive tax, and it's hard on the poor. My answer to that is um, that type 2 diabetes is a regressive disease. And one of the reasons why the tax passed in Berkeley, I think, was because such an effort was made to do community organizing around, do you know anybody who has diabetes? Does anybody in your family have diabetes? Do you know that the soda companies are deliberately targeting people of low income? And that kind of thing, I mean, real education around the issue. Uh, so I think the, the tax is a phenomenal educational campaign, a sort of an unexpected benefit, even when the taxes don't pass. So do sales go down. Hi. Thank you for being here today. I had a question about how we can get those who are most affected by the industry involved in these narratives. And like you were talking about how minorities or people of color are most affected by these industries. And also just access, because just looking around this room and you say we should vote with our fork, many people can't afford to do that. Mm -hmm. So like how to get more people involved in this food movement. You do community organizing. That's the basis of, any, of everything. If you want to bring um, a large group of people into this movement, you've got to talk to them and find out what they want. You have to listen to them. Um, you need to try to work with them to find out how you can help them get what they want and expect it to take a long time. 
it's not something where you can go in and tell people what they ought to want. I don't think that works very well. So I'm greatly in favor of community organizing. It's hard, but it works. So. Thank you so much for your talk. <clears throat> I just wanted to um, ask you about your opinion of the um, side effects of a carbon tax on um, food politics. Um, for one, um, generally corporations are centralized, so uh, the miles that a product has to travel would be uh, also subject to that tax if the transportation is coming from a fossil fuel source. Um, and as it looks that in the next 10 years, um, that increasingly worldwide there'll be more and more taxing of carbon, I was wondering um, how the, the distinction that uh, Gerard Hastings makes between businesses and industries, um, between, say, a local uh, socially motivated, uh, also profit motivated company versus a, you know, fiduciary responsibility investors uh, uh, focused corporation, um, how this centralization, decentralization with taxing of distance will make various foods more expensive or local foods, say, less expensive? Thanks for asking that. I rarely get asked questions that I've never been asked before, but you just won the prize and I don't have the faintest idea. <laughs> but I will pay attention to it from now on. Thank you very much. Okay, so if you were to recruit nutritionists, dietitians, and food activists to join your movement, what could you ask us to do to be a part of what you're doing? To pick an issue that you care about and get to work on it. Um, you know, there are plenty of them. There are enormous numbers of food issues that, that people are involved in that they care about. Pick the one that you really feel passionate about and get to work and have fun with it. <laughs> Activism is fun. Hello. <laughs> thank, thank you so much uh, for all your work and coming here. I wonder if you'd comment on uh, diet soda drinks. Oh. And, uh, Do I have to? I don't know, I don't know some of these uh, uh-huh. uh, Pepsi-Cola and, and sort of trying to turn themselves into health food mm-hmm. companies or at least change their image in that mm-hmm. regard. Uh, Well, I have rules about eating, and one of them is never eat anything artificial. So that completely excludes um, diet drinks because they have artificial sweeteners in them. So they're off my radar. Um, I'm squirming about it because I know lots of people think that they're really harmful and unhealthful. I haven't seen that evidence. I'm not convinced that um, you do anything except pee out all that stuff. Um, but I don't think they taste good, and there's certainly no evidence that they help people maintain a healthy weight. Um, in fact, there's quite a bit of evidence that people who consume diet sodas... This is an interesting area where um, you can tell who funded the study by what its result is. So if the study shows that diet drinks help people lose weight and are really healthy, the soda industry funded them, and if the study comes out and says... Um, people gain weight on diet sodas. They were probably funded independently. Um, I, I don't know. I, I just don't want to have anything to do with them. So I'm not sure that's very helpful. Sorry. <laughs> and I don't know what the tax people should do. Um, you know, I, I think probably the, 
the more important tax would be a graded sugar tax, um, like they're trying to do in Great Britain, and the um, and that would put a lot of pressure on food companies to reduce sugar, but it would also put pressure on soda companies to put more artificial sweetened beverages out there, and I don't know. I'm stuck on that one. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.